Assalamu alaikum. May peace and blessings be upon you. My name is Katie Miranda, and I am here with my friend and partner in crime, Jonas Caballero. Now, Jonas and I go way back. So you may hear like some silliness or just kind of weirdness going on between us because I met Jonas um, in 2006 in the village of Beit Omar. And unfortunately, the last time I saw you, what was 2007? While we were just like sitting on the beach in um, Sinai. Um, this was after the Israeli soldiers had arrested both of us and deported Jonas from Palestine. And I had to travel all the way to Sinai with all of his stuff to give it to him. And so, yeah, the last time we saw each other was Sinai, or maybe we went to Cairo after that, something like that. Yeah. So you have a really interesting story about how you ended up going to Palestine. And I'm going to ask you about that. But first, I want to explain why I'm doing these interviews. We are going through really challenging times right now. And I am trying to speak to all of my friends who have gone through extremely challenging situations and come out the other end and gone on to do great things. And so we are going to talk about what's been going on with Jonas for the past like eight years. I didn't see him or didn't hear from him for a lot of that time. We're going to talk about why. Um, but hopefully his story will inspire you. And so Jonas, tell me how... How did you end up in Beit Omar in 2006 with me? Oh, Lord. How did I end up in Beit Omar with Katie Miranda 14, <laughs> 15 years ago? Wow. It does seem like a lifetime ago. Um, but basically, what happened was, was I had graduated high school and I had a free ride to any state university in Pennsylvania. And I had done really well in school up to that point and was like, uh, uh, I'm not, I'm not going straight into college. This is not happening. So I decided to put off more education at that time and just start, um, driving ambulances. Uh, I was an EMT in Pittsburgh for about three years after high school. And I was doing things like going on calls for cardiac arrests or, um, you know, mental health emergencies, um, a lot of just regular old transports from hospital to hospital and seeing a lot of interesting things. Um, my father was a firefighter. My brother was a police officer. So I kind of felt like my role as an EMT sort of fulfilled the like, you know, emergency medicine triangle or something. But I knew I couldn't do that forever. Um, well, I guess I could, but in my head, I couldn't. And so I decided um, after 9-11, um, you know, I was driving ambulances on 9-11, and there was a plane that was supposedly hijacked and hovering over the outskirts of Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania somewhere. 
which eventually came down in Shanksville. But there was a theory that the plane was going to come down in Pittsburgh for some reason, um, maybe hit the steel tower or something. We weren't quite sure, but it was a very intense day because my boss had dispatched all of the EMTs and paramedics throughout the city to key spots just in case the plane came crashing down that we would be ready to go, you know, um, should anything happen. So basically, so that was a very impactful, it was an impactful day for all of us. But for me, it was like, you know, really, you know, stuck, stuck out in my mind and my father who, who served in the military. Um, so did my grandfather and great grandfather. Um, I decided, Hey, you know, I should just join the Air Force and become a flight medic. Um, you know, hearing proud to be an American, where at least I know I'm free over and over on the radio, you know, and coming from a, a quasi-military family, it just seemed like the, the next logical step for me was to join the Air Force. So I went to take the aptitude test at the federal building in downtown Pittsburgh. And lo and behold, lo and behold, lo and behold, <laughs> my name wasn't on the list. And so I was like, okay, so can you just put me on the list? And they said, no, you have to be on the roster in order to take the test. So we'll sign you up to come back in two weeks so that you can take the test then. Okay, no big deal. You know, I'll be back in two weeks, except psych, I was not back in two weeks. Because within these two weeks, I was bicycling through the campus of Carnegie Mellon University in and Pittsburgh. lo and behold. And lo and behold. I heard this story so many times. <laughs> <laughs> Lo and behold, a divine intervention befell me. <laughs> and it was a divine intervention that was spearheaded by none other than Deanna Butu, who I had no idea who she was at the time. But I saw this flyer up on the campus of Carnegie Mellon, and it said, in pursuit of peace in the Middle East, a lecture with Deanna Butu lawyer for the Palestine Liberation Organization or something to that effect. And it was that day and about two hours from that time that I saw it. And I, of course, in my 20 year old mind thought, hey, you know, I might be ending up in the Middle East if I join the Air Force, you know, in a couple of weeks, might as well go here what this woman has to say. Lo and behold, <laughs> there I am sitting in the auditorium listening to Deanna talk about Israel, Palestine, and the upcoming wars in Iraq and Afghanistan, and 9-11, and, you know, U.S. foreign policy, and all this, you know, global, military, whatever, industrial complex, and I, I didn't know what the crap she was talking about. All I knew was, prior to that, you could not tell me that Israel could do no, that, basically, prior to that, I thought that Israel could do no wrong, that Palestinians were all terrorists. And here she is telling me that everything that I thought that I knew was a lie. So that sounds um, familiar. Yeah, it does. Right. Yeah. And yeah, and I know many people who that sounds familiar to as well in my family and in my friend circles. So I followed the speaker, Deanna, and the organizers to the reception afterward, where I was sort of waiting in line to speak with Deanna, basically to say, what the crap are you talking about? But there was, she had so many people waiting to speak with her that I sort of hovered around this literature table and, you know, was clearly looked a bit out of place and maybe a little nervous. 
so much to the point that the woman who organized the event, her name is, is Kate Dare, she sort of found me and asked how I was doing. And I just got sort of spilled the beans with her. I was like, look, I don't know what's going on. My brain is on fire right now. I'm, supp I'm supposed to join the Air Force in two weeks to go be a flight medic. Now I'm, I'm learning that, you know, Israel is occupying the Palestinians and, you know, that they have been since 1967, that there's something called the Nakba of 1948, that my tax dollars are going to fund this. And here I am about to go and join the military industrial complex in order to perpetuate this um, in Iraq or Afghanistan or wherever they might send me. And so Kate said to me, listen, I'm not going to tell you what to do and what not to do, but I will tell you to do this. And she handed me books upon books and, and you know, uh, literature and pamphlets and things about the Israeli-Palestinian conflict and said, go home, this is free of charge, take it, return it if you want, keep it if you want, and here's my phone number. If you have any questions, give me a call. And that was it. That was like what put me down the path that led me eventually to that village of Beit Omar, where I met Katie Miranda, and where I would eventually end up dedicating the, the greater part of the rest of my life to the Palestinian cause. Um, so I didn't go back to the Air Force recruiting station, although they called me many a times to get me to come back down there and take that aptitude test. And within a year, I was on a plane to Palestine for the first time. That's when I met you. And so I want to ask you now, like, what are your two most painful moments in your life? So my first most painful moment was being incarcerated and dealing with incarceration. Um, and it's sort of connected to the reason that I ended up uh, in the prison industrial complex was because of my addiction to drugs. Um, one, you couldn't have had one without the other in my case. Um, after I had been, after I was deported from Palestine by the Israelis. Was, I, was your most painful moment when you were arrested in Palestine and then also in the U.S.? Or are these like, um, there, is that what you're talking about? It was, well, it was, my arrest in the United States was the more painful okay. of the two. But that's not to say that my first arrest in Palestine was not one of the most traumatizing experiences of my life. Um, so I guess that's a good place to start. Um, because as you know, I was living in San Francisco in 2003. Um, and by 2006, I made the decision to move to Palestine. Um, or 2007, I decided to move to Palestine. I, I got rid of all of my belongings out in San Francisco and off I went to Palestine. And I, um, I want to interject here because there's a funny story. We were both living in San Francisco. We didn't know each other, but you were a waiter at that diner. What was that diner? Sparky's Diner. Sparky's Diner. And I came in in the middle of the night with a bunch of my goth, goth friends. And you were this like snotty waiter. I remembered you. I remembered your face. You're like this snotty, like snappy waiter. 
you got on my nerves and um, I never forgot that, but that was like probably 2004 or something before we actually met. Yes. So sorry about that. But <laughs> <laughs> yes, I was, I was like 20 years old at the time and a bit snappy for sure. Yeah, you sure were. <laughs> <laughs> I had to fit in. What do you expect? Anyways, you came in with all your goth friends doing your goth thing. So you probably asked for a little bit of that. Probably. We, we were probably <laughs> snotty too. Yeah. Um, so, so in 2006, you went to Palestine, joined the International Solidarity Movement. We met in Beit Omar. And then we went back to Tel Can I just Israel. stop you right there though? Because yeah. you can't just gloss over that we like met in Beit Omar. Here's how I remember it. Okay. Okay. I was coming to volunteer. Um, it was my second time working with the International Solidarity Movement, the ISM. And I, I think it was after I went through training again, which is like a two-day training of what to expect in Palestine and, you know, how, how to respond to military actions and what to expect from Palestinians, et cetera, et cetera. So I get sent to Beit Omar where they say to look for Katie Miranda, who's the local international coordinator, right? And so I'm trudging through the, the landscape of the village and it's hot and I'm sweating and I'm tired and I have this like big knapsack and I see this, it, looked, it seemed like an apparition or something like way far in the distance, this like black, like, figure in all black sitting underneath a tree like maybe an apricot tree or something with like pale skin and like bright lipstick as I get closer and I'm thinking to myself where, where am I who is that like that has to be who I'm coming to meet right and so I, I get there closer and closer and closer and there you are just kind of like stoic in a way but also kind of welcoming in a way and I was like, who is this person? Like, what is going on here? And so wouldn't you know it though? Your life it, was never gonna be the same. It wouldn't, it would not be the same. And I got to open my bag to like get a water bottle out or something. And there are my juggling pins. Oh yeah. And Katie goes, are those juggling pins? <laughs> do you do circus? And I was like, as a matter of fact, yes, I do. And she said, so do I. And I believe what happened next was you pulled your poi out of your bag. Poi is, do you want to explain what poi is? Since you're Yeah, like fire poi are, um, they're what's used in fire dancing. So they are wicks made out of Kevlar about this big. And they're on a long chain about the, the width of somebody's arm, the length of somebody's arm. And you spin them around in patterns. Um, after they're lit on fire and you just dance around. It's fire dancing. And Jonas happened to be a fire dancer too. Like in the middle of a Palestinian village, like randomly two fire poi spinners sitting underneath an apricot tree in August in the, the dead heat of, of summer in Palestine. What? Yeah, so, from San Francisco too. From San Francisco, yeah. Wow, it was like destiny. <laughs> <laughs> God set us up to meet there. Yes. We are interrupting for a quick little commercial break. As some of my listeners know, I am an artist and a jewelry designer. 
and I am offering 15% off jewelry for listeners of this podcast. You can use the code KM15 at checkout to get your discount. And Jonas here has is actually a customer and he bought some of these bracelets, some of these stretch bracelets as gifts for his nieces. And Jonas, can you tell me why you bought them? Yes. So I, my, I have two nieces. Um, one is 10 years old and one is 13 years old. And I was out of their life for a little while, um, traveling and just not as uncle-like as I wanted to be. So because they are getting older, um, I didn't want to just send them a card with some cash in it. I wanted them to have something that they, um, that is beautiful and that they can, you know, think of me when, when they see it um, so that I'm a, a more present in their life um, kind of uncle. And also because Palestine means so much to me, I uh, wanted them to have something that reflected um, my love for Palestine. And so I got them each a stretch bracelet that was designed and, and constructed by Katie, one of which says hope in Arabic and the other one that says love in Arabic. Cool. Thank you. And you can go and shop on my website and get your 15% off discount at katiemiranda.com. There's a link below the video and you can use the code KM15 at checkout to get 15% off jewelry. So then what happened? So then we ended up doing our thing. You know, we, we were working full time for the ISM pretty much. Um, we decided that we were going to use our skills to fight the Israeli occupation, our circus skills. And how did um, we do that? How did we do that? What yeah. do you like to know? Well, <laughs> we decided to um, create these amazing circus shows um, through an organization that we started called the Tel Rameda Circus for Detained Palestinians. And we came up with these choreographed fire dances. And not only did we teach the children of Tel Rameda, um, which we'll explain what Tel Rameda, the Tel Rameda, Tel Rameda neighborhood is in a hot second, but we also um, utilize our skills in order to de-escalate tense and sometimes violent, often violent situations at the military checkpoints in Hebron and El Khalil in Palestine. And how did we do that? <laughs> you remember the first time we did that? Oh, was that when the soldier was doing backflips? Yeah. Yeah, but I think you might have a better recollection. Okay, so we, Jonas and I were on, um, I think we were just kind of like patrolling the main street, which is Shuhada Street. And our duty was to make sure that settlers did not attack or harass Palestinians because they both walked on the street. And um, we were asked, we as meaning ISM, were asked to stay in this neighborhood to videotape and de-escalate situations between Palestinians and settlers and Israeli soldiers and settlers. So we were just kind of watching in the street, watching people walk by, making sure nothing bad was gonna happen. 
And then, well, actually I should say we were bored because this work is oftentimes very boring. It's like 95%, you're just sitting around doing nothing and then like 5% something happens. So we have brought our fire chains and Jonas brought his juggling pins into the street and we were just practicing because we were going to perform for the kids later that night. And some soldiers at the checkpoint started to rough up this Palestinian man who had come through the checkpoint and they were pushing him around and harassing him and just being mean. So we went over there and it was our duty to, if we saw a situation like this, to de-escalate it, to try and calm people down and stop the violence. And so I just, I don't know where this idea came from. I guess it must've come from God, but I just said, okay, Jonas, we are going to perform a circus show here. And so Jonas started juggling and I started spinning my fire ploy and we, we just were being absolute clowns. We were being absolutely ridiculous. And the soldiers stopped like roughing up this Palestinian and they started watching us and they started laughing. And so we successfully de-escalated a situation and they let the Palestinian man go. Um, and then one of the soldiers started doing backflips. But anyways, that's how the teller made a circus for detained Palestinians started. And so what next? So then we, one, one, I think the even greater aspect of TRCDP was just the joy that it brought to the Palestinians of the Tel Rameda neighborhood. Um, you know, the, the, the children are so afraid to come out at night. And actually, for the most part, part their parents won't let them come out at night because there are violent extremist Israeli settlers who patrol the streets, uh, weaponized, um, who are obviously protected by the Israeli soldiers who man and woman the, the neighborhood. And so what TRCDP allowed the children to do was to take back their streets, at least for one night a week on Friday night, we would have these fire shows when it got dark and all the, I'm telling you, all of the kids would come to these shows. They would leave their homes. They would, you know, it was like a mini revolution. Like they'd take back their streets. They'd say F you to the occupation and literally like surround us. And they'd be all up on the rooftops and on the walls and just hanging all around and watching this fire show. And it's like, you know, cause these children are being deprived of a childhood as it is every single day of their life, you know, especially in a place like Tel Rameda. So I just love that. I, I thought it was such a, a beautiful and rewarding and amazing experience for us, for the children, for everyone involved, except for the Israelis <laughs> <laughs> who were so afraid to, to, you know, come near the fire. I mean, that's I one of the things I loved about it. That was like the only time that we were off limits to the settlers. They wouldn't come near us when we were spinning those fire chains. Yeah. And they tried, I dared them once. Oh yeah. They, they wanted to come and start some shit. Yeah. But I just started <laughs> spinning those in their face. <laughs> they, yeah. they didn't want to come near. No. So yeah. that was like one of the highlights of my life doing those. Oh shows. yeah. Uh -huh. yeah. I think about it all the time. Um, so that was, that was when we met. That's how we met. That's what we did after we met. Um, 
and that was that was 2006 right yeah so you know we did a little tour of the west bank and we did some shows um in the refugee camps and you know had we were very well received and you know had some arabic techno music that we choreographed our uh fire shows to um you can see some of these videos on youtube actually if you search for teller made a circus for detained palestinians yes um 2006 camera technology yeah <laughs> <laughs> exactly yeah so so then you we we got arrested and you got deported and is that kind of when things started to go downhill i mean i know because you, you've after that you finished college you got a fulbright scholarship to yeah study at cambridge yeah i mean it so with the with the arrest in palestine um you know it it, it really was um it had a profound effect on me yeah. um, emotionally spiritually physically um because i had as i had mentioned you know i had relocated to palestine and like yeah. you and i had our apartment in the west bank and you know you you had your job i had my job you it was like a thing lemon squares what you cooked lemon squares i cooked it. lemon squares yeah. like outside yeah. of our our kitchen window was like a wadi like we yeah. had olive trees and we had you know shepherds and sheep in our backyard like it was unimaginable <laughs> like, it's kind of like it's kind of a a microcosm of the whole occupation it's just like this beautiful pastoral country you know olive trees and beaut natural beauty and then it's like there's always the occupation around around i mean like absolutely yeah. miserable. i mean we were there because of the occupation like it, it's yeah. I mean, I had a job in Palestine because there was a military occupation of Palestine. So, you know, I, I'd be remiss not to call attention to that fact, you know? Yeah. And so as beautiful as it was, it was always founded upon something so dramatically messed up, yeah. <laughs> you know, and just horrid and horrendous and decrepit and just ungodly, really, I think is, is the best word for it. And it spared so, no one, as, mm -hmm. as, as you well know. Yeah. So do you want to tell us about what happened with that arrest? Yeah, so um what were you doing? <laughs> so this is I mean, come on. You can't make this stuff up. So it just so happens that there was going to be a gay parade in Jerusalem and I wanted I was working as a journalist basically um in addition to my role at, at the ISM and I thought, like, wouldn't it be interesting? I, maybe it was a joint idea to do to write a story on the one thing that can bring the three Abrahamic religions together, which is their um, disdain for homosexuals. You know, it was going to be Jews and Muslims and Christians protesting the gay parade in Jerusalem. So I'm like, oh, I'm in. I'm going, <laughs> honey let's go honey and so <laughs> so what do we do we hop on a bus and we start heading to jerusalem from ramallah to jerusalem we turned down a, a ride remember that 
we had a ride with an Israeli um, lawyer, right, to go uh, into. Oh, I forgot about that. Yeah, it, it, had we taken this ride, who knows what would have happened? Maybe Your life would have been much different. Yes, I mean they would have found me eventually, but we decided to turn down the ride and just take the bus with the Palestinians to Jerusalem for the parade. And there we are, nearing Ramallah, near nearing Kalandia, the um, monstrosity checkpoint, checkpoint, the Maksom, the nasty fortress of a horrendous steel and concrete sniper towered, you know, apartheid wall of a checkpoint, and the bus stops, and coming on board the bus are these Israeli soldiers who, in my memory, like, they knew why they were coming on the bus. They were coming on yeah. the bus for us. They were looking for somebody. They were looking for somebody. Yeah. Yeah. For me. <laughs> for us. For you. For me. Okay. They come straight to our seat and say something in Hebrew and basically passport, show me your goddamn passport. And I do. And they pull out some little sheet from their pocket. And I swear to God, like in my memory, what they did was they compared the numbers on their little piece of paper to the numbers on my passport and immediately put me in handcuffs and took me off the bus. And, and I was not far behind. <laughs> you think? Because <laughs> she was actually she wasn't far behind at all. She was like next to me. She was on top of me. Like, first of all, no, you don't come on a bus and take me <laughs> off like for doing nothing. My, the only thing I did wrong was work for a, Palest a Palestinian human rights organization based out of Ramallah. That's it. The, witnessing and documenting human rights violations committed by the Israeli occupation with the support of American tax dollars. Obviously, there is something wrong with that if you are the occupying power, because they want to prevent the truth from getting out from their occupied territory. So as I'm escorted from the bus in handcuffs by two, um, I was going to say corrections officers, but no, two <laughs> occupation soldiers, Katie is at my side, screaming at the top of her lungs, let him go. Put, well, you're like just demanding the release of her her bestie, basically. And they took me to this basically militarized um, jail-like um, trailer. Yeah, it was a trailer. Yeah. Police trailer or something. And they took me in there too, because I wasn't going to let them alone with you. Yeah, in my memory though, you busted through the door. <laughs> I don't know how true this is, but in my memory, they took me into the trailer and you almost like tore the door off its hinges and <laughs> was able to like enter this jail like trailer. And she she kind of did this with my arms and was refusing to let me go, which I 100 percent appreciated. But was also like, what the crap is going on right now? Because like. I wasn't expecting, I don't think, we just weren't expecting it. We were going to literally- We were going to the Pride Parade. We were going to the Pride Parade to write a story. Like, what did we do? What the crap? Um, so that's what led to the arrest. And 
what what happened next? They took they took me away. They put me in prison, um, where I um, remained two weeks. I I think it was a week and a half, maybe two weeks. Um, you went on hunger strike. I went on hunger strike. Um, I was in a prison in Ramla, Ramli, um, which was every every single other person in there was an economic refugee and an uh, economic migrant from countries like Eritrea, Ethiopia, and Sudan, um, people who had escaped poverty and war and, and entered into Israel looking for work and were subsequently arrested and thrown into prison. And, you know, I thought my life was bad at that point. Like, poor me, like I've been arrested from by the Israelis. What's going to happen to me? But hearing the stories of the folks that I was in that prison with was like, it, it put all things into perspective. Like everything in my life, finally, not that it didn't mean thing. I mean, obviously things that affected me prior to that mean something. But when you hear these stories of, of people who prefer, I, I wouldn't say they preferred, they, they were seeing the bright side of their situation. And for them, being in an Israeli prison and getting between two and three meals a day, even if it meant that they had to be in that prison for 10 years before the Israelis gave them some sort of residency was better than the situation that they came from in Sudan or Ethiopia or Eritrea. And just hearing that, I'm like, well, <laughs> my problems just don't <laughs> seem that bad anymore. Like, yeah. and, and it was just amazing. Like the folks I, I was, so as you said, Katie, I was on hunger strike um, because they were trying, the Israelis were trying to make me, they were trying to deport me back to the United States, but I was living in Palestine. My home was in Palestine. My friends was in Palestine. You know, everything that meant anything to me at that point was in Palestine, except for my mom who was back in Pennsylvania. And so I was hunger striking because I was demanding my release. Um, I didn't do anything wrong. I had a legitimate um, visa, whatever, whatever. And everybody in that prison was just like taking care of me and like begging me to eat and telling me, look, you know, if you just eat a little bit, we'll still tell people that you were hunger striking, <laughs> but just. <laughs> that must have uh, been tempting. It was tempting. And I, I might've given in at one point, um, but they were, you know, for me, it was like, I'm not eating from the hands of the occupiers. I'm not eating from this apartheid system. Like screw them, let me out. Yeah, but anyway, yeah. So long story short, um, my so Kobe, our um, our solidarity friend uh, Kobe Snitz, who was sort of my legal liaison, um, was able to, I guess, find a lawyer that was able to convince the Ministry of the Interior to deport me of my last port of entry, as opposed to my home country. Um, and my last port of entry was Egypt, um, because I had gotten into Israel that year through the southern border with Egypt. And um, I remember Kobe saying something like, congratulations on being the first person in the history of deportations in Israel to be deported to a country other than their own or something like that. Yeah. yeah. So your, your hunger strike paid off, maybe. It, I guess it did. I mean, it also paid off because you brought me a tofu sandwich or something. And yeah. I was <laughs> it was so delicious it was the best tofu sandwich I ever had um and then they deport me to you know they they put me on a okay first of all they take me to 
Tel Aviv airport and there's a plane waiting on the tarmac ready to go. But at the last minute, they decide that there's this like convict that needs to board the plane in the middle of the tarmac. And they take me up to the plane. They pull up some stairs onto the tarmac to the plane and I'm handcuffed and shackled, right? Going up these stairs to this plane and they open the door and ever, the plane is full of people. Oh like, God, that must have like, been... Israelis and Jordanians <laughs> and Americans and wow. they open the door and they see this guy coming up who was like <laughs> oh you know scraggly and I just gotten out of prison and I'm in handcuffs and shackles and they like deliberately waited till everyone could see me before they took the shackles off of me and then they had a whole row cleared out of the plane in the back of it back of the plane to put me in and I walk past everyone and everybody's face is like <laughs> and I'm just like hey <laughs> It's me. <laughs> and anyways, they, they take me to, to Jordan and then they take me to Egypt. And that's where I remained for a while until I went down to Sinai to meet you. Uh, I had to haul all your shit, all your stuff, your whole life on my back through the Eilat exit border crossing. And they blew up your stuff. Oh, yes. And I think it's a little bit like more intense than they just blew up my stuff. I mean, they shut yeah. the terminal down. They shut the border down yeah. because Katie, what, I guess a suspected terrorist or whatever they were trying to label you at the time was coming to meet another supposed labeled terrorists, which is what Israel does when there's peace activists or human rights organizations, they like to label them as terrorists. And then they shut the terminal down. And I don't remember, I don't know exactly how it went, but they evacuated it. <laughs> except for me. They, they evacuated took all my stuff. everyone except for Katie. And then they took her stuff. And then she hears not one, right, but two explosions. Yeah. And then they come back to her and hand her these blown up electronics and says which was your laptop and your camera and your bag and my tea and my books there was a hole yeah, yeah. there was literally a hole through my book one of my books like I and could like the calligraphy that i did for you i i yes. wrote his name in arabic calligraphy i i made a, like a little design for him and that was blown up too so that's how we ended up in sinai like on the beach together and that was kind of like the last time we saw each other. And then you, you finished your bachelor's. You got a Fulbright scholarship to Cambridge. You got your master's. What did you get your master's in? Middle Eastern studies. And then I didn't hear from you for a really long time. Do you want to talk about what was going on? Yes. Um, so, so as I said, that whole experience had a very profound impact on me. Yeah. And it, it's not that it, um, it's not that it made me um, decide to start doing drugs, but it definitely, like I had already been participating in illicit substances here and there throughout my life, but I did fall into a depression. Um, and despite the fact that I was experiencing symptoms related to PTSD and anxiety, and depression, as you said, I was still able to, you know, finish my my undergraduate degree at the University of Pittsburgh, and not only that, but um, was awarded a Fulbright scholarship to Cambridge. 
but in that meanwhile i was i was still dealing with a lot of those residual effects of you know being deported from you know i i consider it it's not my homeland but you know palestine is in my blood it's in my heart and you know if you want to tell me i'm not palestinian then whatever like that's that's on you but i know in my heart like there's something that that place has done to me and that those people have done to me because you know i just feel palestinian through and through in any case i couldn't go back and i was i was depressed and you know was you know my my drug habit was sort of over the years starting to escalate a little bit what were you what kind of drugs were you using well at that time i was using a lot of coke um smoking a lot of weed drinking i mean i was I was drinking a lot, um, you know, and also I was doing LSD and mushrooms and, you know, it was like, it was a way to, I, I self, it was a self-diagnosis of PTSD and anxiety and depression. And my only way to deal with it in my brain was to just, you know, self-medicate self with these, these drugs. Um, after I came back from doing my, my master's at Cambridge, um, I moved to New York thinking, well, you know, I have a Fulbright scholarship under my belt and I have a master of philosophy in Middle Eastern studies from Cambridge. I have it made, like I'm moving to New York and I'm gonna find a job with, uh, with Human Rights Watch or the United Nations or something, um, Amnesty International. And I looked everywhere, honey. I was like, you know, living in hotels, basically, um, staying on friends' couches. I had no money saved. I just was like, hire me, y'all. What are you waiting for? Don't you know who I am? And it just didn't work out. Um, but I knew I didn't want to be back in Pittsburgh. Um, I just, I wanted to be in New York. And New York is expensive, honey. Yeah. So one thing led to another. Um, you know, not finding work definitely didn't help with my depression and anxiety and living in New York City, you know, the crossroads of the world, like, didn't help. And so my drug habit escalated even further. And next thing you know, I started doing meth in New York because it, you know, I had never done it before. But in New York City, like the party scene is all about meth. And so I ended up doing that, developing a quick habit of that drug. And, um, and then I started selling. I actually, like I came from Fulbright scholarship and Cambridge to New York city to sell meth. Like, you know, and I always had, like, I would always say to myself, like, what the crap are you doing? Like, mm -hmm. I just, you know, this isn't, I knew that it wasn't right, but I just, I was stuck in this, you know, vicious cycle of, I need to sell more so that I can pay my rent so that I can also, you know, support my habit. And th that cycle just kept repeating and repeating. And so and did, um, did your friends or family know what was going on? Cause, cause they, you weren't talking to me at this point. And I thought, I thought I just wasn't cool enough for you. No, I wasn't talking to anyone because okay. I knew that people knew that I was in a bad spot. I knew people knew I was in a bad place. And I, it was just easier for me to not even speak to my best friend here back home, Sarah, who's been there. She, I, I've known Sarah since I was um, 16 years old. She's been my best friend since like 
three or four. And I just, I didn't even talk to her. Like I just shut everyone out completely. And because I knew when they looked at me, they would see that. I knew that they would see, you know, the drugs and that they would see disappointment, uh, that they would see me throwing my life away. And I'd rather just not talk to anyone. So you just didn't I'm, want to deal with it. Yeah. And so I'm sorry that you felt that way. Um, but you, you weren't the only one. Okay. Cause I saw these like party pictures of you in New York city. And I thought, wow, he's just, he's too cool for me these days. Yeah. No, I was, no, it wasn't you. It was me. <laughs> um, <laughs> so then I got really sick. Um, in 2015, um, I, my heart decided that it was going to basically stop working. Was um, that from the meth? It was partly from the meth. Um, it was partly from the other concoction of drugs I was doing. It was from not sleeping. Um, it was from partying too much and not taking care of myself and not eating. But also I was doing steroids at the time as well um, because that's what you know the people in my circle were doing. You know They were getting big and they were you know, going to the clubs and they were taking their shirts off and da da da. So I had to do. I know you, you went from an otter to a bear. I saw. I you did. I was like, <laughs> I was scary. Like, <laughs> I literally not even. I was like twink to otter to bear, <laughs> and then to like, like in a coma. Like, that's literally what happened to me. I, I, I was having shortness of breath for like two weeks, and I went to the ER like two or three times over those two weeks. And I kept saying to them, like, there's something wrong with me. Like, there's something wrong with my lungs. There's something wrong with my heart. I, they, they diagnosed me with supra, supraventricular tachycardia, SVT, which means like your effing pulse is way too effing high. Like my pulse was at 200 mm -hmm. and normal resting is 60 to 80. So, oh wow, yeah. And that was my resting rate was 200. Oh my gosh. Yeah. So they, they gave me like some Xanax or something and had me like chill out and calm down. But within another week, like I, I literally like couldn't breathe. And I walked myself to the ER because something in my brain said, if you don't get to the ER right now, you will, you, you'll die. And luckily I lived two blocks from a, from a hospital in the village in New York. And I went in there and they took one look at me and was like, there's something wrong with this kid. And they gave me an echocardiogram or whatever. And they saw that my heart was pumping at 5%. Like a normal, that like the ejection fraction, which measure, measures like the health, health strength of the heart or something is typically 50 to 60% for a healthy heart. Mom is at 5%. And they were like floored. <laughs> they had to do it again because they didn't believe that it was a 5% ejection fraction. They said, there's no way that I should have been walking to the hospital. Like they said, you shouldn't have been able to even leave your house at 5%. So who do you want to call? Because we have to put you into a coma and give you a tracheotomy. Huh? Yeah. Like they had to give me this. Oh my God. Yep. So I was like, well, try to call my mom. It was really late. That didn't happen. I didn't speak with her. Um, next thing you know, I woke up something like four or five weeks later um, after having these crazy, I remember every second of them, very vivid nightmares while I was comatose. What were um, they? That's like a whole other. That, that would be a three hour interview. Yeah, but let's just we're say. We're already like, almost up to an hour. Oh, 
so do we, we can keep going we're, we're gonna do this as long as as okay, we, okay. Wanna, we don't have a time limit but okay so you, so, you can you can tell me about one of those dreams unless yeah okay i'll, I'll tell you about one of them um basically all so the three nightmares were like they were like episodal as opposed to um recurring so it was like i would have one of these nightmares and the episode would end and i'd be on to the next one and then I'd be on to the next one. And once that episode ended, it came back to the first one so that I could see the next episode in that series or whatever. So they were about my three favorite people at the time, which was the guy I was seeing, my best friend, Sarah, and my mom. And and weren't you married? <laughs> kind of. Um, was, that, was that the guy? No. Okay. No. All right. So no. is the guy you were seeing who? The guy I was seeing, my best friend, Sarah, and my mom. Okay. Sorry, I thought I was going to sneeze. I... Oh, excuse me. Saha. Uh -oh. What? I said Saha. Sahtain. Bless you. What do, I, what do I say to that? Sahtain? You say Alhamdulillah. Okay, Alhamdulillah. <laughs> um, so it was based, so my theory of these nightmares was that they were so ridiculously dumb and intense and like the plot lines were so messed up that I think that that's part of what kept me alive because I remember watching these nightmares like movies while I was comatose and I literally remember saying to myself in my comatose mind that I want to see how this episode ends like I want to see more because like my mom worked for a secret society that was collecting Fulbright scholars. And if you, if you turn a Fulbright scholar in, you get the amount of money that Fulbright spent on that person. So my mom was turning me into a secret society for like $45,000. Like what? And my best friend, Sarah, like this was the most craziest one, which was I, she, I was riding her around Pittsburgh on my bicycle and we got into an accident because it was raining and I couldn't stop. And we got hit by a Mack truck and I killed her. Like she, she was literally like in pieces, like decapitated and her, her limbs were all over the road, but she was still talking to me and it was just a mess, but so real. And like, I could like smell it and see it and feel it. And then the other one was the guy I was seeing who there was another secret society involved, but this one had to do with the end of the world and um, I was the one thing that if I was caught, the world was going to explode. And so I was trying to not get caught or else the world was going to, going to end, um, because there was going to be some sort of like atomic explosion that would destroy the earth or whatever. And so Maybe. I was like, Oh, go ahead. Sorry. These dreams were like, I was on the run. And if I got caught, something bad would happen. So in my like waking mind, what that means to me is had I died or got caught in these dreams, I myself laying in that bed would have died. And that like, would have been the end of the world for all of your loved ones. Yeah, exactly. So it was kind of like true. Yeah. In a way. Yeah. And so I think that had something to do with it. Like it, it, you know, I'm, I'm not one to turn the other cheek and throw in the towel, you know, like I'll always, you know, if it, even if it's like getting back into Palestine, I will get back into Palestine. I did get back into Palestine. Like, I, I'm not just, I don't take that for an answer. Like, no, is not. no for an answer. No, that don't work in my book. 
Um, you don't and, take being in a coma for an answer? No, honey. <laughs> and so, you know, as you said, I was like, you know, twink to otter to bear to yeah. all of a sudden, here I am again, yeah. deflating because I, like all my organs were shutting down, my heart, my kidneys, my spleen, my liver, my lungs, like we're all checking out. And like every day there was a new prognosis from the doctor that was like, you know, it, it's time to start thinking about what you want to do when, you know, the next bad thing happens. Cause I was already on life support. Like if they pulled that plug, I'd be dead. And my mom wasn't, she wasn't having it. She was like, I'm his power of attorney. I'm his medical power of attorney, whatever. You're not pulling that plug. And she kind of knew that I, <laughs> that's maybe what I would have wanted. Um, like I'm, I'm a DNR, but like, she knew that I also would probably have chosen if there was even a slight chance that I'd make it to keep me on. So, and I had like a whole line of people coming up to visit me, like Sarah, who I think worked her way into my nightmare because she was, she came up from Pittsburgh to New York city to do Reiki on me while I laid in that bed. And I think I knew she was there and I knew she was working her magic on me. It's just that my messed up brain with all the propofil and fentanyl and whatever they were putting into my body translated her being there and working her magic translated it into this nightmare of a scenario um so part of you must have been aware of what was yeah i was aware i i i would wake up every so often whenever like the fentanyl and stuff would would wear off like and how i would wake up was was just like in a movie where i would see myself laying there in a bed and I would hop into my body and come to, but they would have to immediately put me back under because I had all kinds of IVs and innovation tubes coming into my, my throat. And I was trying to remove that just mm. like your body wants to get that stuff out of you. And my mom, like, like a linebacker or whatever would have to like lay on top of me in order to prevent me from pulling out um, the tubes and at the hospital I was at, they don't do restraints. They do these mittens. So I had these big ass mittens on my hand so that I couldn't get a, a, a hand hold on, on those tubes. And like the pictures, like, I don't even recognize myself in those pictures. It's just like, I didn't recognize myself when I actually finally came to, and I, like, I had to learn how to walk again. I had to learn how to eat again, to drink, to talk. Like I couldn't talk for the first like week and week and a half. And when I finally was able to get myself to the bathroom and I looked in the mirror, I was just like, who the F is that? Like, what the, who are you? And I just bawled, like, I lost it then. Like, cause then it hit me, like everything that I had gone through, you know, was, was because of the poison I was putting into my body. Um, you know, and, and I started thinking, it started hitting me that like, I worked so hard to get to where I was like educationally and professionally and it just, you know, looking at myself, just, it, it was like a slap in the face. Like you threw this all away. Like you, you did this to yourself. You messed up. This is your fault. And so it was like depression again. And it was like, you know, it just, it re re invented my, my depression. And now I was, then I was diagnosed with adjustment disorder, which is like, you've gone, it's like PTSD, except that you, you, you've gone through something and now you're trying to readjust to the world. And for someone that just got through a coma after like being in septic shock and cardiogenic shock and should not have made it by every, every doctor who was in there basically said I wasn't going to make it. Um, it's, it does a lot. 
Mm-hmm. And then I fell back into it, Katie. Yeah, I was going to say, you, you didn't really learn your lesson. I didn't. I did it again. Why Why do you think that was? Was it just the depression over your experience? No, it's the addiction. It's, okay. it's like... That wasn't enough. That wasn't like... You know, it, it should have been. And like everybody, like my friend Sarah came back up to... Like after I got out and I was back in my apartment and trying to live life again... I fell back into it and everybody knew like, except this time, like it was like, everybody was already on alert. Everybody was already looking out for me because I almost died. And so any like change in my behavior was like red flag, like he's at it again. And so like people were telling me left and right, what the F are you doing? Like, but I, I took that as an affront and I got mad at people for even like, I, I had this weird like Superman, whatever that psychological term is, like Superman complex or something where it was like, I survived the unimaginable, unsurvivable thing. And now I have people trying to tell me how to live my life. Like, how dare you? You know, like, so anyways, I shut everyone out again to the point that like people were starting to hate me (laughs) and get really angry with me. And I didn't care. And I was doing drugs again. And then I got arrested. I got arrested in jail for much longer. Then I was in jail for much longer than the first time around. And so that's when, you know, it was a whole different kind of jail experience. I mean, it was like, you were in for two years or something. I was in for two little, yeah, two and a half years, two and a half years. Mm-hmm. I was, um, it was, a, you know, I was arrested for by an undercover police officer for selling meth and they put me in prison they put me in jail and I was in jail at Brooklyn in a Brooklyn uh, County jail. And that's when it was just like, all right, this is decision time. Like, first so, of all, did you, I've been, huh? Go ahead. I just was going to say, I've been, I've been sober ever since the day of my arrest and that's not to say that prison turned me sober what that is to say is that I made a decision on that day that enough was enough because a lot of people will say oh while you were in prison you couldn't get drugs anyways let me tell you a little something about prison there's so many drugs in prison pretty much any imaginable type of drug that you want you can get um, whether through Uh, visits through other um, incarcerated people or through the correctional officers because that that's where a lot of it comes in and so um everywhere everywhere I turned people were like you want this you want that you want this and I just was like you know what no let me see if I could do this cold turkey and because I don't want to go through this like already you have a come to Jesus moment like did God enter this (sighs) Mm, that's a good question it depends on how you would define that. Um, like I, there was definitely a spiritual awakening, not God as a person or an entity, but a spiritual, like I've seen enough in this world. I've, I've seen the magic and the beauty and the pain of this world to not 
be able to take those experience and and apply them to my own particular circumstance. And so for me, it was like, okay, I'm going to say no to drugs <laughs> on the one hand. And on Absolutely. the other hand, I'm going to, I'm going to own the fact that I messed up a second time. Like I got my second chance and I threw it out the door. And now there is, there's a spiritual something that's given me another opportunity here. Unfortunately, that has to be done in an incarcerated setting, but I'm going to see if I can make the best of it. And so while I was locked up in Brooklyn, man, I just like, I never in a million years thought that I was going to be interested in a legal career, right? Like, no, like that was always so far back in the back of my, my mind that, you know, politics, okay, you know, international studies, journalism, let's do that. But like law, no thanks. But while I was locked up, it was like every, everywhere I turned, I was either witnessing, you know, constitutional rights violations of other people, or I was having my own rights infringed upon. And I don't take that too lightly, you know, like. You didn't take it, it in Palestine. That's I didn't take it in Palestine. And that's the other thing too, is like, I, you know, I was always so international in my like human rights vision that, you know, it, it never, it just didn't click that. Like I, I need look no further than my own backyard, you know, like, and here I am, you know, having done many years of human rights work here, I am now like amidst, you know, the, the, the biggest, you know, prison industrial complex in the world right here in the United States. Um, who locks up more people per capita than any other nation, you know, most other nations combined. Um, and I have an opportunity to apply my experiences with human rights to this current situation. So, you know, I, I was denied access to medical care on many, on multiple occasions. I was sexually assaulted by a correctional officer. Um, I, you know, undergone, I had undergone um, illegal searches and seizures of my body, like cavity searches as a pretrial detainee, um, as opposed to an actually an actual sentenced, um, you know, prisoner. And I didn't know, like, I didn't know what that meant. I didn't know the logistics of what is a pretrial detainee and what rights do they have as opposed to, you know, an actual sentenced um, person. But I knew that there was something there, right? I just couldn't put my finger on it because I didn't know the law. And so we were on lockdown all the time, which means like 23 to 24 hours a day, you're in your cell. Um, so, so I was like, doing? well, at Did first sleep and reading, you know, whatever books that were available in like the, the, the prison library, um, you know, you get out every so often to use the phone. But I was like, you know what, let me see. And I'm a, I'm a very um, avid note taker. Um, I don't keep a journal, but when I think that something is going to mean something, I, I'm pretty detailed in, in, these, in, in taking notes and keeping track of important events. So I was keeping a, a log of all these violations I was experiencing and the 
the um, the badge numbers of the officers and the times that these happen and the dates and this and that and that. And that. So I was like, Mom, can you send me a a book on prison law, please? Sure, you know, you know, I found the name of one. She found it on Amazon. She sent it to me, and so I'm like, just on lockdown. So I'm reading these prison books, and I'm like, oh, see, there it is. That's that's the Fourteenth Amendment. That's you know your right to. That's the Eighth Amendment. That's your right to be free from cruel and unusual punishment. You have a right to medical care when you're uh, incarcerated individual, and da da da. That's you know your right to be free from searches and seizures. Fourth Amendment, whatever. So I'm like, okay, well, now what do I do with this knowledge? You know, like, I know that I've been wronged. I know that there is a cause of action, like, that allows me to, to, to sue for this. What do I do? And so I was like, well, I'm going to see if I can write a lawsuit and see where it goes. And so I wrote my own lawsuit for, I actually wrote two lawsuits against the city of New York. And I ended up eventually, it took about a year and a half, but I represented myself and I settled those cases uh, against New York City, which is pretty major. I mean, it was like $30,000 for the two combined. But um, for my first time ever attempting law, like, you know, the, the attorneys for the city of New York, you know, for the assistant attorney general or whatever was trying multiple times tried to dismiss my case cases based on um, they would say that I failed to state a claim or that I you know, didn't use the administrative grievance procedure correctly or whatever. And the judge kept siding with me to the point that I, they were eventually forced to settle. So I was, that was like quite a victory for me. So you got $30,000. I got $30,000 from those two cases. Um, like, oh, I have a knack for this. I was like, you know what? I'm pretty good at this, you know, for my first two attempts as succeeding. Um, so then when I was finally sentenced, so my, my judge or my um, attorney was trying to convince the judge to give to convict to um, sentence me to a rehab facility um, since it was a drug charge and it was my first um, my first felony my first and only felony offense can you just give him a a drug court send him to drug court and get him a rehab um, sentence and they weren't having it they like I don't know if they wanted to make an example out of me or what but they actually sentenced me to three years um with five years of post uh release supervision which means i'm on parole for five years so i was transferred upstate um to a green correctional facility upstate new york and because i knew i had a knack i was i have to admit like i was really afraid being in prison like i'm a i'm a gay boy like there was not there's there's not a gay community in prison like at least not the ones i was in um, so I was a little bit like, I was trying to tone down my like, yes, yes, trying to tone it down a bit and be a bit more like straight acting and whatever. Um, but uh, the, did you pretend I, to be straight? Well, I, I, I didn't act gay <laughs> for whatever that means. Um, cause you know, I'm, I'm pretty flowery in my language and my mannerisms and I had to tone it down, but people knew, I mean, it was like a lot of people knew I had a lot of friends in there that were like, are are you sure you're not gay? And I never officially came out, but I'd never really like officially denied it with a lot of my close friends in there. But what I had to my advantage was that I had a laptop, a, um, not a laptop, a typewriter that my mom had sent me. And I got permission from the superintendent or the warden of the jail of the prison to have a typewriter. 
And so, cause I, I had a knack for the law in the county jail, I took that with me upstate. And so people were coming to me, asking me for help with um, their motions, with how to challenge an illegal sentence, with how to write their own uh, prisoner rights lawsuit, you know, how do you exhaust the administrative grievance procedure, all this stuff that I had no effing clue what any of that was prior to my incarceration. I had those 10 months while I was locked up in Brooklyn to, to understand that. And by this point, my personal library had grown to like, you know, self-help litigation manuals for prisoners and how to, you know, how to litigate a pro se prisoner um, lawsuit and your right, your medical rights in prison, like all these like very particular um, manifestos on, you know, written either by or for um, prisoners to sort of guide you through the litigation process. So people were coming to me for a lot of help. And so I, I had a kind of like a shield. So like, even if I was gay, people weren't gonna mess with me because they wanted help with their the lawsuit. And so like, I, I had like friends over there and friends over there and people had my back. Like when I was getting some flack from someone, they, were, they weren't having it. Mm -hmm. Like all I had to do was be like, yo, he's causing some trouble. And <laughs> I didn't get no trouble anymore. So um, anyways, long story short, um, upstate, I was experiencing the same issues that I was experiencing downstate in terms of uh, constitutional rights violations. Another denial of access to medical care um, for 10 months this time upstate, um, along with um, denial of medical privacy rights. Like, get this, um, I was transferred to an outside medical facility to have a colonoscopy, okay? And this is for a pre-cancer, uh, pre-anal cancer diagnosis that I had um, been diagnosed back in 2015. So like that diagnosis had been with me for many, many years, but they kept denying me access to a colorectal specialist, despite the fact that I was seeing a doctor every six months in the community. So when they finally get me to a doctor, 10 months after I was transferred upstate, um, that, so I have, prisoners have a right to not be viewed naked by a member of the opposite sex, okay? And there was this, so there were two escort officers that took me to this outside medical facility. One was male and one was female. And the female officer really didn't like me because I kept asserting my rights. Like I have a right to have private confidential medical conversations with my physician, which means that you don't have to leave the vicinity, but you have to let me have a private conversation so that I can tell the doctor what my fears are, you know, whatever my diagnosis is, I need to be able to share that with you so that we can come up with the appropriate treatment plan. Well, she didn't like the fact that I knew my rights and that I was asserting them and I was stating case law and I was stating state law. And so she pulled up a chair and sat right next to me so that she can hear every single word that was being shared between my doctor and me. So I couldn't even express some of the questions that I wanted to express because she was sitting right there. And then I said to her, well, but that's okay because you're not coming into the operating room with me for this colonoscopy. And she says, oh, like hell I'm not. And I was like, well, you're actually, it's illegal because you're a female and I have a right to not be viewed naked by a member of the opposite sex. So she decides to put on some scrubs and gear up and she comes into the operating room with me. And I'm under full anesthesia, okay? Like I'm not posing a threat to any single person in that hospital because I'm not waking up. <laughs> mm -hmm. And so there's screens all up over the operating room. She can see inside of my colon like she wanted to be there 
to watch me get a colonoscopy. Like that's the most- Just to like humiliate you? It's humiliating. It's it's invasive. It's demeaning. It's all those, you know, all those adjectives. Like there she is watching it. And according to her own testimony um, through discovery, she even admitted that during the entire 90 minute procedure, she never took her eyes off of the inmate, which was me. So she like admitted that she watched every single thing that happened during that colonoscopy. So after already being- sexually assaulted by a correctional officer down in Brooklyn. Here I am with another officer that's abusing her power for the sole purpose of abusing her power, um, totally ignoring policy um, and other directives and state law and constitutional law in order to basically fight me on the fact that I knew what my rights were. Like This is sounding really familiar, to be honest. It sounds like exactly what Israeli soldiers do to Palestinians. Yeah. Exactly. Put them in a situation where they're humiliated. Yeah. I'm just going to pause you for a second, Jonas. I'm seeing like this pattern here. Like when we were in Palestine together, you were helping a lot of people and you were being productive and you had something to do. You, you know, you like you were following your passion. And then when you got out of graduate school, it's like you kind of didn't have anything to do. You know, you didn't have any human rights that you could defend, basically, and you got bored. And sometimes when people get bored, you know, they start to mess up. And what I'm getting from talking to you is that you now have something to do where you can feel useful again. And so you don't need the drugs anymore. Is that, do you think that's correct? Yeah. And I, to be honest, haven't, I haven't had a moment to take a step back to see, to connect those dots. Like I I was actually talking to my dad about this when you were in prison, because he was asking me about you. Oh yeah. Yeah. And I told him you were in prison for selling drugs. And I, you know, I thought he just, he got back from finishing his degree and he didn't, he didn't have any Israeli soldiers to fight. And that's like part of, you know, that's like his personality. He has to be fighting the man and standing yeah. for what's right and what's just and what's lawful. And well, I, that's I think exactly, you're that again. No, and I think you're exactly right. No, I know you're exactly right. Because, you know, when, when I got out, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to loop back to that. Mm-hmm. in a hot second because it, it explains why I think I'm so chill right now and happy where I am um, because so there I am in New York I, um, I'm suing the state again uh, like I feel good in a, in a weird way like I'm incarcerated I'm, I'm witness, still witnessing a whole bunch of nasty things um, by the state by the abuse of state actors Um, but I, I have something going on. I'm like, I'm fighting the good fight, you know, although it's me as the plaintiff, it's for the greater good, right? Because people are going to be experiencing these things over and over. Maybe in some small way, these lawsuits will help to quell some of that, that stuff. Right. So fast forward a little bit. Um, I I end up getting paroled a little early for good behavior. Um, I'm surprised. (laughs) I know. Right. (laughs) I mean, they didn't like me at all. I mean, like I even had the New York Daily News come to the prison 
to interview me because I had written to them so many times about the violations that I was experiencing. So I think they were getting annoyed with me that they were just like, you know what, let's just send somebody up to the prison. So they came up from New York City to Kosaki, New York, um, which is a few hours from the city, and they got a press pass to come into the prison and interview and, and video me and interview me for a full page story on um, this guy who was a Fulbright scholar who got into some trouble for selling drugs on a first time offense. And instead of getting a rehab program, here he is being sentenced to a three year sentence where he's now experiencing a denial of medical, all this stuff that I was just talking about, they put into a story. Um, so they didn't like me in the prison, not one bit. Yeah, but that's why I'm surprised you. Yeah, I know. Good behavior. I they, think Jonas, I don't think good behavior. Yeah, no, they <laughs> couldn't do anything to me though, because like that's playing with fire. Like, you know, the one time I, I had this grievance that I had submitted and they call me into the office and there are five corrections officers, two captains and the superintendent in this room with just me. I thought they were going to beat me up um, and get away with it. And they told me if I don't, um sign off on this grievance that they were going to come into my dorm and there's 60 people that live in a dorm they're going to flip everyone's stuff they're going to go through all of their um uh dressers and go and rip open their mattresses looking for contraband or whatever and they're going to say that i said that there were drugs and weapons in the dorm in order to you know get me on like get, get back at me for filing grievances mm -hmm. so i kind of backed off a little bit on that but yeah, they, I was surprised they didn't come up with some bogus ass, you know, disciplinary uh, infraction and find some way to get my parole, you know, revoked or whatever. But that didn't, that didn't happen. Um, I got out. Um, I got out in December of 2019. And like two weeks before I got out, they were talking about this virus in China. And I remember saying to myself that it wasn't even quite known at that point what was going on, but I I was like, that's coming here. Like, get me out of this prison before that shit comes, comes to the US. I mean, it was already here, but we didn't know that at the time. And so, yeah, I, I get out. I moved back to Pittsburgh just as the pandemic was starting. So um, I, when I got out, I was like, you know what? Uh, what am I going to do now? I'm an I'm a ex-convict, you know, like I have a criminal record. I'm on parole for five years. My my Fulbright scholarship is like already in the rearview mirror. Who cares about that anymore? Did you, you know, think of applying back at Sparky's? <laughs> no, um, I didn't. I actually, I was just like, for, for the first like six or eight months, um, you know, I, I couldn't even reconnect with my friends because things were shut down. Nobody was leaving their house. Um, you know, there's a, a pandemic with everything shut down. So I, I'm not even leaving to go and reconnect with Sarah or my other friends post, you know, coma, post prison. Like, what am I going to do now? So I just like got depressed again, but I didn't turn to the drugs this time around. I turned to I, my memoir writing because I started writing my memoir while I was incarcerated. Um, it's called The Book of Jonas, How I Survived Pittsburgh, Palestine, Purgatory, Prison, and the Pandemic. Um, so I, <laughs> I turned to writing and, um, you know, just wrote out the pandemic. Um, but I also was like, you know what, I, I have this background in law now. Like, yeah, I might have a criminal record, 
And yeah, I might be on parole. And yeah, there might be news stories of me having sold, sold meth to undercover cops. <laughs> but I do know the law and I have been successful in, in, in litigation. So I went ahead and applied at the Abolitionist Law Center here in Pittsburgh, um, which is a public interest law firm that is committed to ending mass incarceration and state violence. So it's like, it's like the work in Palestine, but here in the, in the, U, in the U.S., in Pittsburgh. Um, so you found so something useful to do. Together. I found something useful to do and, you know, stay and out of- Sober for how many years? Um, November 2nd was uh, four years. So- Under the left. Yay. Um, what do I say to that? Um, Hello, no. Yeah. Okay. Um, and so that's where I'm at now. I'm at the office of the Abolitionist Law Center. They, you know, just you know, they do hire and, and encourage people who are formerly incarcerated to apply. Um, and so, you know, I, I did, and they were super excited to take me on board. I've been here since March of this year working for them and have been involved in some very amazing work, um, including most recently our client who had been incarcerated for 50 years, 22 years of which was straight um, in solitary confinement. Ooh. 22 years in solitary like confinement. What a five Venunu. Yeah, yeah. And he, we uh, filed for a compassionate release for him. And after 49 years, he is now home with his family um, to live out the final days of his life. Um, so he, as of last month, this happened last month, so I got to partake in that, doing some legal research and, you know, drafting some some motions and editing some of the petition and, you know, being on the, his name is Maroon, Ru Russell Schultz. Um, we call him Maroon. And, um, you know, being on the phone with him and chatting with him since I started in March and now knowing that he's out of prison is just like, you know, so rewarding and, and you know, it's bittersweet um, because, you know, it's a compassionate release, which means that he's you know, he has a terminal illness, um, but at least, you know, he's with his family after surviving the most horrendous, you know, decades of incarceration. Um, what was so, he in jail yeah. for, in prison for? Um, he was uh, in, in prison for murder of a police officer. Um, and this was, like I said, 50 years ago. So he has, you know, over the years, he has served as a mentor for so many people, both who are incarcerated and in the community. Um, he has gone above and beyond in terms of turning his life around um, and, uh, you know, en engaging with, with uh, folks who are experiencing the carceral system um, and getting them on the right track. Uh, he's just amazing. Like his, his writings and speaking with him is just, is so um, deep and rewarding. So I'm hoping to visit him, uh, at some point in the near future. He's in Philly at this point. Um, so anyway, so there's all kinds of work, like with the abolitionist law center, the and you're, you're trying to get into law school, right? Yes. Um, I am, I just took the LSAT and I am applying to three law schools, next month i'm applying for early decision uh so i'll hopefully i'll get into one in pittsburgh or in the alternative in philly and um 
I am so looking forward to it. Um, I actually go to trial on November 22nd. I will be, um, my two cases that I filed in upstate New York are still pending. Uh, they have been in litigation for over two years. Um, this is the one for the one, the woman that was refusing to not um, give me some privacy and was so determined to see the inside of my rectum. Um, <laughs> so, I will see her in person. I will see Are her. Are you going to say that? I can't really say that it that way. Um, but that I do really have weird. some. I do have some like alternative ways of saying it that are it's just kind of like why are you why did you need to be there like is does it really mean that much to you to <laughs> to have to see the most invasive and you know to be honest disgusting procedure like what's wrong with you <laughs> <laughs> so that's so i go in person to albany um where I will be lawyering for myself. I am calling witnesses. Um, I will be giving opening statements. I'll be in a suit. I will be, yes, your honor. No, your honor. I object your honor. <laughs> I cannot picture you in a suit to be honest. I know, it's gonna be weird. That's like if it was a kofia suit. Ooh, now we're talking. So anyways, the, the long story so short- It's a kofia tie. I love it. Kofia tie. I love it. And so, kufia socks. Ooh, now we're talking. Kufia <laughs> socks. Yeah, I know where you can get some of those too. I have a pair. Tell me. Yeah, I'll I'll send you a link. Okay. Um. So, anyways, I guess the whole point of all this is I'm I'm in a spot where I didn't think I would be. I I surely didn't think that you know post incarceration that I was going to find myself in a place that I was not only succeeding professionally, but that I, I'd be able to use this most horrible experience, um, traumatizing experience, um, dehumanizing experience, humiliating, you know, um, abusive, that I'd be able to take that and turn it into something that, um, that is, is working out for me. Like, you know, to be able to apply that to my role as a legal advocate slash paralegal at the Abolitionist Law Center. Like, I know, I know the inside of the prison industrial complex. Um, through my work inside the prison, I've been able to learn and utilize whatever mechanisms the law actually like has or the, the parts of the law that actually works sometimes. Because um, by and large, we know that that doesn't work. Um, and to see that, you know, I haven't, I haven't fallen into the trap that I fell into after um, being deported by the Israelis and then after coming out of my coma. So anyways, I was going to say, I wanted to loop back to what you said, which is that, you know, I, it's when you're fighting the, for me, it's like when you're fighting the good fight and you're trying to take down, you know, state violence that's what does it like that that is my that's dream thing. <laughs> you know that's that's my addiction is like taking the man down like there's no need for me for for anything else no need to use drugs anymore 
Yeah. Do you drink? No, I actually, I stopped drinking. What's that? I said, Alhamdulillah. Alhamdulillah. Yeah, I stopped drinking in 2012, actually. Um, and I stopped because my best friend Christian, Christian from San Francisco um, died of stomach cancer. And when I was studying at Cambridge, um, I flew out to San Francisco to see him before he transitioned onto the next life. And um, he was just my like best buddy from out there. And we were like Bloody Mary buddies and would try a new restaurant and try out their Bloody Marys every Sunday. And he just, you know, he was fighting this cancer. He was in remission for a while. And then it came back, you know, in full force. And, you know, I was there to send him off. And when I came back to Cambridge, I just made a decision back then to, to forego alcohol. So, so you're, that, you, you, you're almost on your way to becoming a Muslim. <laughs> Basically. Yeah. I am like that close. <laughs> <laughs> Inshallah. Inshallah. Al-Ard bititkallam Arabi. Al-Ard bititkallam Arabi. Al-Ard. I feel like I've been rambling, but I guess that's the whole point, right? That's, that's your story. We, we, that's, that's it. Basically we, we got from when you were about to enlist in the air force all the way up to Palestine, to your drug use, to your incarceration, to your newfound interest in fighting the man on a different continent. And, um, God willing, you'll get into a good law school and um, be hearing lots of good things about what you're doing. Inshallah. Inshallah.